This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the specialist agency that builds profile and helps grow business for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite business leaders with something to say into our kennel for a chat, and we ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. This is the first episode of The Dog and Bone since the UK started the long path back from lockdown. And in their own kennels at home, rather than our studio, we have two big dogs of the advertising and marketing game. They've worked together for many years and they know each other well. Craig Ingalls recently left the John Lewis partnership where he was customer director for both John Lewis and Waitrose. So he was the client behind some of the most famous advertising ever aired in Britain, the legendary series of John Lewis Christmas ads. And he's also chairman of the Marketing Society. And he's joined today by one of the people who made those campaigns for him, superstar ad man, James Murphy. James set up Adam and Eve in 2008 and reversed it into DDB five years later. Recently, Adam and Eve DDB was named Agency of the Decade by both the Can Lion jury and Campaign magazine. But with business partner David Golding, James left last year and they recently announced the launch of their new agency, New Commercial Arts, memorably employing cardboard cutouts of themselves and their team in the launch PR because, like all of us, they couldn't get together in an office. James, let's start with you. Tell us about how the John Lewis advertising relationship came about. Uh, I think, I mean, Craig had actually moved to John Lewis roughly about the time that we started Adam and Eve. And, um, and I think that uh, then I think that business had found itself in a position where it was looking to review the, the account. And I think it was with Lowe at that point. And, um, and so they put a pitch list together and we'd been in business, I think, about eight months, something like that. So there were about 10 of us or something. And, um, and I, we, Craig very kindly got us onto the pitch list, I think, on the basis that whilst we were small and probably relatively puny for a retail account, we had some good experience, particularly doing M&S kind of food campaigns and Twiggy and Erin O'Connor and everything back at Rainy Kelly. So whilst we were small, we did have good retail experience. So Craig got us onto the list and then we had to kind of fight our way from there. Well, particularly, how did the, how did the, what was the, the, the sort of genesis of the, the campaign that so many of our listeners will remember? What, was there a breakthrough moment? I think, in fact, Craig, you, you were telling me that it actually dates back um, much before what some of the some of the ads that people first remember. So how did it all start? Well, I mean, I joined uh, John Lewis in uh, 2007, so about a year before uh, Adam and Eve started. And uh, and to be honest, it's an, an odd brand in the sense that it was uh, much loved, much talked about, a real institution in a way that I didn't really fully understand when I joined because uh, I grew up in a sort of small... <laughs> mining town in Scotland and John Lewis wasn't a big part of our lives put it that way and um, I hadn't I'd completely uh, underestimated just how much it was part of the nation's psyche and and yet it had never embraced marketing in fact if anything as a brand it was uh, you could describe it as anti-marketing because there was a sort of concern around uh, over promoting uh, uh, oneself and uh, it's a very conservative uh, brand and when I joined there'd been one Christmas ad which had gone down pretty well um, you know, but, but, you know, relatively innocuously and, and, and then a few hits and mainly misses uh, in other times of the year. 
And so, um, as James said, we, we worked with Lowe at the time and um, we uh, sort of embarked on Christmas for 2008. And it took us a couple of attempts, two, three attempts before we really started to get traction. And it was really in 2010, actually outside of Christmas, uh, a campaign called Always a Woman, uh, which was fraught with difficulty to make. Uh, it was incredibly, incredibly stressful to make. Uh, a week before it was due to go on air, uh, we didn't have an ad uh, and we didn't have a director. And James and I had a very difficult conversation on a Saturday morning. And then the following day, uh, we shot the ending of the ad in a local park in Ealing near where I live. And, uh, and the rest is sort of history because that campaign really became the moment in which we cut through. And uh, we got, I think what can only be described as a sort of uh, a wave of emotion in terms of the response, both uh, externally from our customers and from uh, commentators in the media, but also internally, most importantly, internally within John Lewis. Right. Now, I could say, let's pick up the story then, James. So with a bar set high with Always a Woman, how did you, how did you kind of keep going each, each, um, each season, mm. each year to keep the, 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 the quality so high? I'm, I think what's interesting is that these things always look much more premeditated when you look back on them. And uh, because Always a Woman, was, we followed it by a Christmas ad that wasn't like the really big, big famous ones and wasn't like Always a Woman. It wasn't a single story. Uh, we had a, an ad called Tribute to Givers and uh, it had Ellie Goulding covering Your Song by Elton John on it. And... Um, and it was a, a vignette-based ad. So actually, it wasn't really in the same sort of model of emotional intensity as Always a Woman, and nor was it in the same model of in, emotional intensity of The Long Wait or The Hare and the Bear or where you had single stories around characters uh, and so on. Um, so I think actually, whilst the Christmas ad that followed Always a Woman was good and it was quite powerful and, and so on, we then, we, it was really the following Christmas when we really hit our groove on Christmas advertising. And uh, that was with the long wait. And um, certainly for me, I think Always a Woman and Long Wait are the absolute sort of, they're, they're the real standout ones. Um, that might be because they were done early on and they kind of shaped our thinking and our, our approach. But also I think there's almost, um, there's a sort of, simplicity and a spareness about the storytelling in both of them and, and it, they're very very human as opposed to using sort of slightly more fictional you know animal characters or sort of fairy tale like setups um to tell the christmas ad message was there a lot of kind of engineering of the launch uh, i seems to remember in the latter years big kind of grand switch-ons in in november is that how you see it craig uh, well, funny enough, we, we went out of our way to avoid anything that remotely looked like a grand switch on. Um, and it's a really fine balance. But uh, as I said earlier, you know, John Lewis is a brand which is inherently quite conservative. And so um, we needed to tread a fine line between telling the story, creating intrigue uh, and having a bit of fun with it, but also not uh, overstepping the mark and being seen to take ourselves too seriously. And um, I think one of the things that unites James and I uh, and united our teams was to never believe the hype. And the, you know, you're only as good as the last piece of work you've done. And we tried to create uh, intrigue. We used uh, sort of tease campaigns, I think, really well over the course of the years. And each year, they, uh, we tried to kind of change that up without getting too elaborate. Uh, I remember Tim Pearson from uh, Man and Got the Boom D suggesting one year that we uh, we launched by 
taking a barge down the Thames somewhere near the Parliament and uh, it involved fireworks and projecting onto Parliament and that kind of thing. Uh, I still tease him about it to this day because it was so far off brand. <laughs> uh, and it had good intent. All he was trying to do was, was sort of change it up a bit from the year before, but it's just miles off brand. So, so um, uh, e each year we definitely tried to hold ourselves to a higher bar. Uh, and I think the question I get asked the most is, how do you keep repeating? And, and I think there is no great secret, but the, the answer lies somewhere in the, the trust that we had uh, between the, the Adam and Eve team and, uh, and the John Lewis team. The fact that it was a relatively small group of people with a lot of consistency, particularly with me and James and Ben Priest and so on. Uh, and the utterly brutal honesty that we were able to have as a consequence of that trust. I mean, it, it was not unusual for our debates, particularly on music, to nearly reach moments of fisticuffs. So I think that was the secret to us achieving what we did, um, rather than it being some sort of over-engineered plan. I, one, one thing that I thought was interesting about the, the way that things, the sort of, the dramatic change in the media model and the media landscape where um, one of the things that we were surprised by when we did the Always a Woman ad was this idea that um, the ad ran and it ran in fairly, it, it was a model which was really about um, high impact, lower frequency. And so you'd go into spots like a sort of classic big Saturday night X Factor spot and so on. And the ad would run and then we suddenly saw huge numbers starting to rack up on YouTube. And bear in mind, YouTube was a very, very, it was in its very early days at this point. But, um, and I remember with Always a Woman, we were absolutely blown away when I think we got three, we got up to three and a half million views or something on, on YouTube for that. And we suddenly realized that there was this model whereby you could go for lower frequency, but high impact on terrestrial type sort of TV channels and, um, and then let digital video pick up this kind of long tail and the campaign would run forward from there almost under its own steam. And, um, but the evolution and particularly the penetration of uh, smartphones and video over mobile um, was so steep and so dramatic that really within probably five years, six years of that, the media model had sort of flipped around the other way where the launch was no longer in a Saturday night um, X Factor or a Friday night, night gobble box. It was on social channels at 8 a.m. on a Thursday morning to catch people on their commute. And you'd get huge spikes of sharing. And, uh, you know, we'd be trending on, we'd be trending number one Twitter in the UK and disappointed if we weren't trending number one global by mid-morning. And then the terrestrial media wouldn't kick in for what another 48 hours something yeah. something like yeah, that and right. so it was a, the, the physics of the the way people were interacting with these messages and the physics of the media world would sort of dramatically changing i mean what's hilarious in that is that in 2010 <clears throat> i think we were lauded as being pioneers in social media uh, you know <laughs> having created that model and the truth is it wasn't a strategy it happened uh, entirely organically uh, and actually, it was the it gave us the impetus to really start to uh, tackle social uh, in a deeper, more thoughtful way in the way that James has described. What are your predictions actually about this coming um, season's Christmas advertising? Because surely, at a practical level, it's going to be hard to make a, gr a great Christmas ad. And who knows what, what the planners are to make of uh, 
how we treat community and family and what the tone will be. Is it, is it, a, is it an impossible task, Craig, to make great Christmas advertising in the year of COVID? Will they get through it? Um, I think they'll get through it. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, you know, if you think about the timing on Christmas ads, uh, you're invariably making the big decisions about where you go creatively about nine or 10 months before it actually appears. And so the truth is, you never know quite what the uh, mood of the nation will be, uh, whether that's Brexit or, or anything else that's happened. This is obviously a big one. Um, mm. so, the, so the teams uh, in, in brands across the land will be trying to uh, determine what kind of tone they should strike. And uh, I think almost inevitably it will be much more about, about home and about what really matters and about communities and so on. And actually, if anything, I think for the right brands, for, for, for brands that uh, have the right to step into that sort of territory, brands like uh, John Lewis and Waitrose and others, um, it's, rich, it's rich territory. Well, I think it's interesting because I think the, the sort of COVID situation and lockdown and the fact that families have been, um, if you like, penned up together at home has, has been what a lot of advertising has done is just is reflect that with huge sentimental bells on, if I can put it that way. So it's almost like Christmas has come early, um, you know, because there are a lot of a lot of the emotional territory of what's been communicated recently is quite Christmassy and, and so on. And so I think there is a dilemma about what do you actually do when Christmas comes around. Um, I'm sure there will probably be a huge bidding war for uh, people like Major Tom, and you know, I'm sure what, and, and some retailers will be trying to get, you know, very visible heroes like him into their Christmas advertising. Um, probably they'll be trying to co-op nurses and other essential workers and that that kind of those sorts of concepts and so on. Um, I, I'm not sure how you know whether Anton Deck and David Williams and people like that will be so sought after because they're obviously all getting caught in the crossfire of. Um, Black Lives Matter and, and so on. And um, I think there, there may also be a return to a more practical approach to Christmas because, you know, we may still be dealing with certain constraints on what we can and can't do in terms of shopping and what we can and can't do in terms of getting together with our friends and, and loved ones. So that may be reflected as well. But I do think there's been a huge glut of sentimentality in around the COVID period. So I think everyone will need to have to fast a little bit through the autumn before they can deal with another sugar rush of that at Christmas. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. So, uh, James, you've decided to launch a brand new agency in the middle of a global pandemic and economic crisis. Yeah. What are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, we launched Adam and Eve uh, in 2008. So in the, in the sort of in the eye of the storm of that financial crisis. And there is a certain received wisdom that um, it's a good time for startups is when times are very tough because it suits the very lean, nimble sort of operation. And also it means that you're building in such a Spartan environment that there's no kind of waste or, or flab or excess in, in the operation. I think the other thinking um, was particularly amongst myself and, and David, and I think Ian coming from BBH was, um, we've been running enormous agencies 
and frankly had been utterly diverted by the running of those agencies from being practitioners and what we really loved was the fact that you know working with clients you're set a relentless set of puzzles to solve every brief is a puzzle you have to solve you get to solve it together in a team and then you get to create work together with your clients and we were being sucked away from that doing sort of much more management and hr type jobs so we wanted to get back into the muck and bullets so to speak um and then i think also but perhaps based on the experience we'd had working with craig because uh your role changed whilst you were at john lewis and in the final years that we were working together at john lewis so that you know your job had always been a lot more than doing the ads with us but it became much much broader in terms of moving beyond kind of being chief marketing officer to being you know customer head of customer experience and i suppose that opened our eyes to the fact that really really strong brand strategy and consumer insight shouldn't just be feeding comms that you fire out at the public it should be feeding every single experience that the public or shoppers have with a brand and that spurred us to think about a, an evolution of the model and to launch something new and i suppose it was it was that partly an answer to what we saw as the emergence of a new generation of marketeers that were beyond marketeers they were sort of chief experience officers you know i uh, i've been actually been telling james and david for at least five years before they got the joke that actually my job wasn't just about advertising i'm not sure they ever actually believed me by the way so it's it's amazing for me just to hear james actually say it out loud yeah, we, we uh, thought and, and your job was trying to get us to put kings of leon on the christmas ad <laughs> that's what we thought your job was the stone roses wasn't it um but I mean, genuinely, uh, the I mean, the, the much much talked about uh, advertising was I mean, you know, less than five percent of what I, I I was responsible for in my sort of last sort of five years of sort of John Lewis, and uh, the vast majority was about the the customer experience in shops and contact centres, and particularly in my case, online. And and as uh, James now knows, you know, that was uh, it's a hard grind. You know, it's incremental change, it's small increments making a massive commercial difference. Uh, over a long period of time so it doesn't get any of the headlines and yet actually it's it's what drives a commercial organization that's particularly one that's 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 as digital as John Lewis is because uh, John Lewis.com is about 45 percent of John Lewis's total sales so in its in its own right it's a two billion pound business so so small changes make a bit a, a big uh, difference to the success or otherwise so it can't be just about incremental improvements to customer experience. It's got to be connected to something bigger. You've still got to inspire customers. You've still got to connect them to your brand and it's still got to be in service of something. Uh, and I think, uh, I think uh, I wouldn't put words in James' mouth, but I think it's that positioning between the, the and the connection between the, the positioning of the brand and the day-to-day -day customer experience is the sweet spot that the uh, NCA are trying to find. And I think if they can, then there will be clients who are, who are seeking the sort of the deep specialism uh, and capability that's required to do that. And, um, and it just seems to be a lot more sensible in an age where if you make a promise in your marketing communications, that promise is very, very easily put to the test by consumers because they don't have to wait until they go to the shops or go, go to a car showroom at the weekend. They basically just get on their phone or on their laptop and, and they can tell whether the brand experience is living up to the promise. But as, as Craig said, often the, the elements by which you bring promises to life are 
really, really practical and unglamorous. And I think we, we've been asked by someone else, you know, well, what, what do you think, what work will you have to show in the way that you always had great TV or print work and, and stuff to show before? And I think we're very aware that we, we may not have the same um, easy answers in terms of look at this TV ad. It might be about a three, four, five year program about working across a customer journey. And that's less glamorous and harder to show in terms of your kind of creative credentials. But equally, it's much more profound in its effect if you can get it right. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say one of the things that um, Adam and even actually particularly David Golding, uh, one of the, the most important things that has been done in the last few years is uh, the creation of um, the John's Partnerships values. And um, that's really tough in an organization which is so values driven. Um, but it became apparent that that what existed was no longer fit for purpose and there were multiple versions of it and people couldn't really play it back and so on. And actually we did a piece of work with David uh, and the team at Adam and Eve to redefine that in really short periods of time. And it's had huge resonance in being, and we connected it to the, um, the rebranding of John Lewis and Waitrose. So a big piece of work happening externally, it connected that to some, a big piece of work internally and the two married up perfectly and uh, became incredibly important and very poignant. But how does that then fit then, um, James, with, with your idea of kind of British advertising in the last few years? Because what the skills you're referring to there, they don't grab the headlines. And I suppose it may be why you've set up the agency, but um, a lot of your peers are not really set up to deliver that kind of customer experience thing. They just still want to do great ads, surely. So um, is it, are you just setting the pace or is this a sea change for the industry? What we want to do is we want to give... Uh, brands and clients um, powerful thinking that enables them to connect in a very very valuable way with customers and that obviously that will be driven more by emotion than almost anything else but if we stoke up emotion and then the actual reality is a disappointment then we that we won't have not only done no good we'll have done a lot of harm by by doing that so it's creating much more coherent brand stories um, through that broader perspective on experience. And so I find that very exciting, the idea of can we create alchemy that's not just in a piece of communication that goes out to people, but in the actual very experience, the fabric of a brand. I would argue that it's always been the way, you know, if you think about what makes up a, a brand, it's a, it's a complex system of lots of different uh, contacts. And uh, you take a brand like John Lewis, it's, um, it's mainly defined by the people, by the contact you will have had with people. So if that's a good experience, then, then you know, that shapes uh, a, a great perception of the brand and likewise the other way. But increasingly, of course, it isn't people. It's increasingly about tone of voice and digital or the quality and the inspirational nature of the content or, or it's about someone in a contact center, whatever it is. Um, all of those moments make up what the brand is and you have to get all of those right and they've got to stack up to the bigger emotional message that you're connecting with customers on. Where do you think the overall um, marketing customer experience uh, business is going post lockdown? What, what sort of changes do you see happening, particularly the retailers side? We saw um, Nike Town and Bista Village 
swarming uh, earlier in the week. You know, is this going to settle down or is this the new reality? Um, well, look, I, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, and retail was already in a, in a, a very, very uh, a torrid, uh, tumultuous time. It has been for quite a long time. And so who knows really. But, but my view is that, that, that what you're seeing uh, this week will settle down. <clears throat> uh, inevitably there's been a build-up albeit I do find it odd that people are queuing at Nike down I mean presumably they know that Nike.com does exist uh, and everything they can buy at Nike down they could buy online but but anyway um, I think uh, the, the it will reach some sort of natural equilibrium I do believe that there's a future for shops all this uh, pandemic has done is is accelerated uh, the things that might have been sitting on the too difficult pile that I know definitely exist in retailers particularly around getting out of shops and making the shift to digital. Um, John Lewis, where I worked previously, had actually embraced that uh, many years ago, and, and, and they are well set to, to, uh, to, to fully um, benefit from their investment in digital. But not all retailers have done that. So there will be a shakedown, and, and, and those tough decisions will be made uh, now, I think, more quickly than they would have been. That will inevitably lead to... Uh, restructures in some form both within businesses but but i think it's sort of industry-wide and it will settle down i think it will, it will take years for it to settle down um if anything it puts more emphasis on the things that were already important so having a brilliant customer experience um and looking after um your people and uh, within your business and also your customers but also being differentiated <clears throat> this is the thing that i obsessed about in my time at john Lewis and waitress was was you know, there's no point in us trying to out Amazon. Amazon, Amazon are incredible at what they do and have been uh, transformative uh, in the industry. And and their the focus on them has got even greater over the course of the last few months because they're still there, they're still delivering. So being differentiated and really nailing what you stand for and making sure you deliver that deliver, deliver that through your customer experience every day and every moment that ladders up to being a brilliant brand is what it's going to all be about. Yeah. I, I wonder whether the whether the pandemic. Uh, I mean, we sort of say that it, it's accelerated what was already happening. I mean, it may have also enshrined some competitive advantages and dominance amongst people who were already smashing their way through the market. And um, and I do think you look at it and go. You know, people used to say, wasn't there a saying that said culture trumps strategy every time? And I almost think that you look culture at it now strategy and you go, for breakfast, I think. Yeah. Mm. And, and you, you look at it and go, user experience trumps culture and strategy now, because the truth is that whatever, whatever questions people might have about Amazon or Uber, you know, or Deliveroo or any of those other sort of zero based contract gig economy type operations, they may have ethical questions, but the user experience simply overwhelms them. And it's so simple, it's so utilitarian, that, that any of those sort of more softer brand questions are just put to one side. So, so Craig, where do you think your plans are going to take you next? Because obviously you've had a phenomenal decade plus at, at John Lewis, and on one level the world is your oyster, but equally you may want to try entirely new things. Uh, I'm, I'm really hoping that my garden leave will actually uh, involve some experiences outside of the actual garden uh, as well, because I feel a bit cheated on that front. Um, 
And then once that's done, uh, I, I'm really not sure what I'm going to do next. I, I, um, what, but what I do know is that um, wherever I go, whatever I do, it's got to be somewhere with a big ambition, um, with a desire to create real change uh, and, and make a real difference. I think uh, I've got two paths. One is to sort of go down the, you know, working in, in you know, some sort of CMO or customer officer type role uh, in, in a, another brand. Um, and as I said, it would need to have a big ambition. Uh, but I'd love to. I'd love to run something. Uh, I think I've got the skills to do that, and uh, I've built them up over the last few years at John Lewis and uh, and in previous roles. And uh, I'd love to run something. Just have to do the right something. I don't know what it is yet. Okay, we're starting to move towards the end of our chat. One question I'd just like to ask you both, which will be um, of great interest to the Propeller Group constituency, the company that I set up, uh, because we work for a lot of agencies and vendor side businesses. Perhaps starting with you, James, as a as a as a grandmaster of uh, business development, um, what's the what's the best way to get in to see a client who you want to uh, you want to impress? Any tips? Uh, I'm probably going to disappoint on this one, and and say that I don't think we've ever actually uh, wheedled our way in to see a client that didn't already want to see us. If I can put it that way. Growing up in agencies, there was always a new business director and they were sort of like the person who would, you know, get you in to see this client and, you know, you'd be constantly generating presentations that were speculative about this is where you could take, you know, the Halfords brand or the Boots brand or something like that. And the clients were busy then and often too busy to really see, you know, they, they already knew what their priorities were. And, um, so I'm not a great believer in that speculative new business approach. I think you have to be ready when you are approached to be very clear about what you will and won't pitch for. And the things you will pitch for, you have to really, really go for your life and do a brilliant, high quality pitch. Um, and certainly I would say that less is more. You know, we, we turned down probably two pitches, perhaps even three pitches for every pitch we did at Adam and Eve. But the pitches we did, we did very well and we had a very high conversion rate. So, but I'm not a believer in cold calling, doorstepping, because I think when clients are ready, they're ready and their lives are busy and complicated enough without sort of oily account handlers trying to get their foot in the door every five minutes. I, I would, I would 100% agree, I have to say. When, um, when I used to receive, um, I don't know, elaborate CRM packs and or getting cold calls or whatever it is, or being doorstepped at some event, it does absolutely, absolutely just do the opposite to what that person is trying to achieve for that agency. And uh, it's partly about time, but it's also just about, you know, clients don't want to be, um, uh, they don't want a standard offer from an agency. They don't want to hear about how the agency has got the secret to, something that they haven't cracked like you know the secret of crm or whatever it is um what it's all about is 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 connecting creating a relationship over the long term it's about listening and understanding a client inside out and re and being there for them sort of shoulder to shoulder and demonstrating that uh, in a pitch and beyond the pitch so it's deeper than, than uh, any sort of new business techniques i think uh, some good tips because yes i think some people <coughs> will think that it's about churning out speculative emails and, and cold calls, but you both said 
it doesn't work. I mean, James, you said you, you, you know, you, you normally the clients want to see you. So is that because they've seen the work you've done already? I think, I think it's, um, I think it's a little bit of that, but I think it's also the fact that, you know, we have quite a, an evolved market where there are new business consultants that uh, work alongside clients to shape reviews and pitches. And it's sort of interesting because I think, I know when, way, way back when you did the John Lewis review, Craig, you did it with the AAR. And the AAR worked not just in terms of how the pitch would run, but how the relationship would be shaped and then how the relationship would be monitored and quality control would be maintained and so on. And, and I think, so in new business terms, you're, I think if you, can, if you can make sure that the new business consultants know who you have in your team, what the kind of work you do is, is like, and how you like to work with clients, then they're often the gatekeepers to those, to those pictures. We should just touch on the fact quickly, Craig, you're still chairing the Marketing Society. That's uh, still active in your portfolio, isn't it? Yeah, I am. And, uh, you know, I'm chairing the Marketing Society and uh, that has taken up uh, more of my time over the last few months during COVID uh, than it had before, uh, and rightly so. Uh, I'm helping the team there, the executive team, to just steer the, the ship through the choppy waters that we're all facing. Uh, and so we've moved from, you know, a, a board meeting every couple of months to, to one a month and a couple of finance committees in between just to make sure we, we stay on the straight and narrow. We've also just appointed a new chief executive who started uh, on Monday. Uh, so that's brilliant, Sophie Devonshire. So that's exciting. And, and Gemma Greaves uh, leaves us in a couple of weeks. So, so yeah, so that's been taking up loads of my time. I've been running, uh, running events online and that kind of thing, and uh, it will continue to do so. So uh, I'll, I'll make sure that I keep giving them uh, as much as I have been over the last few months. So James, uh, 10 years from now, uh, you'll be well, well into your mid-60s. Uh, <laughs> what were, when you look back and you've achieved success, what will you have, what will you have achieved personally over that 10 years? Yeah, that's a good question. Probably one of the one of the things that I suffer from, and I think it's not just me. I think certainly David Golding suffers from it as well. Is that the how can I call it the the race is the prize? If I can put it that way, I'm not sure there's any particular goal that we're heading towards. The thing that we enjoy is the actual uh, the challenge in the brief, um, the collaborative working amongst ourselves and with clients, and that sense of shared endeavour to kind of crack a problem. And really importantly, doing it in a really, really competitive market where you're, you know, you're effectively playing sport against other teams that you know very, very well. And there's, there's a huge enjoyment to be had in that. So I think the, I think the sad thing is, is that, you know, if we were looking 10 years ahead and I was no longer doing this, I'd be sort of probably quite fed up because I don't think there's a goal that I'm heading towards. I think I enjoy, I enjoy doing this and that, that's all I can say, really. Well, to finish with, um, on the Dog and Bone podcast, I always ask the guests to share with us um, the most embarrassing moment in a business situation, and the the more the more of a uh, more of a shocker, the better. So, um, Craig, would you like to share with us some great story from your, your career? So, my my scenario was um, uh, back. Uh, sometime in the sort of early uh, early 2000s, we were. Uh, it was the day of launching Virgin's new trains, and uh, I was on an, an empty, brand new train with uh, only two, three other people: uh, the the driver, the train manager, and Richard Branson. And I was escorting Richard Branson up to the launch and briefing him on the way on 
what did he need to say and how he needs to handle the launch and that kind of thing. And um, about halfway through the journey to Birmingham, I, I had to go to the loo. And so I sort of excused myself, went off to the loo. And uh, if you're, you probably experienced uh, these new trains, one of the things which was much talked about at the time was that these trains had these super uh, high tech loos and they were all entirely electronic. And uh, anyway, cut a long story short, I got stuck in said loo. Uh, having having done my business, I, I could not open the door for love of money, uh, and spent spent about ten minutes trying to convince myself that if I just kept pressing the button, it would eventually open, uh, and and just getting more and more anxious and sweating because I knew that Richard Branson was sitting waiting me and thinking, what is this guy doing, this muppet from, from marketing? What is he doing? Uh, anyway, so I, the only thing I could do was call a colleague, who then called Richard. Uh, and uh, got Richard and the train manager to come and uh, get me out of the loo <laughs> with a crowbar. So, and, and as the door eventually opened, Richard was stood there and he said, wow, you really were nervous and sort of went like this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went off and did the launch of new trains. So yeah, that, that was uh, pretty embarrassing. Excellent. For the benefit Excellent. of our podcast listeners, Craig was wafting his hand in front of his nose, oh, as Richard Branson did. Yeah. yeah. James, <laughs> yeah. what's your um, embarrassing moment? We were. It was the beginning of year three, I think, Adam and Eve, and we'd had a torrid first two years, and we were pitching for um, a client, a client that was very hard fought. We really, really wanted it, and but this was right at the first stage where the client was coming in with the new business consultant for their chemistry meeting, and I think I had one crunchy bar too many before they arrived because I was even more sort of over sugared and caffeinated than usual and being super enthusiastic probably totally cloying and kind of you know too needy and I was kind of welcome welcome lovely to meet you and and so on and I'm shaking everyone's hand and I got to the marketing director and said fantastic to meet you and so on and he looked at me and there was a pause and he said no we've met before you interviewed me for that job at Rainey Kelly you didn't give it to me though and and the others, I remember Ben and DG looking at like you absolute muppet. You've blown the whole thing. And and I mean the new business consultant was just beside me and said, so I was like, I've never been in such an excruciating sort of long silence moment. And um, but the client was absolutely decent and we ended up winning the pitch, despite me being a you know total tool about that. I mean, that, that just uh, reinforces what David Goldie and Ben Priest have always said, is that they've had, got their success in spite of James. Exactly. I'm like a sort of ball and chain they drag behind them. <laughs> I'm sure not, that's not true. They're a, a wonderful, a wonderful gang, has been remarked before. So I'll draw our uh, discussion to a close. Thank you very much for joining us on this Lockdown Dog and Bone podcast. And I will say goodbye and see you both soon. Thank you very okay. much. Thank Good you. to see you. Okay. Thank Bye you now. very much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog. Or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog. <laughs>